Welcome to the Maritime Podcast. For the latest episode of Maritime in Minutes, you are listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News, and Gary Howard, Europe editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. And we'll be discussing some of the most topical stories for the month of April in the world of maritime and shipping that appeared on Sea Trade Maritime News. Well, April certainly flew by, didn't it? And there's plenty to talk about. So casting our minds all the way back to the first week of April, Gary, I believe you have some sort of rather significant M&A deal to talk about. Yeah, absolutely, Marcus. I think $4.2 billion falls within significant, certainly on my scale. Euronav and Frontline announced their plans to merge in an all-stock deal. Once the dust has settled on that, Euronav shareholders will hold 59% of the combined company and Frontline shareholders 41%. They plan to keep the Frontline name, but Euronav CEO Hugo Stoop will take the new CEO position. John Fredrickson gave his full support to the deal, which is unsurprising when you think about it. He has the largest stake in Frontline and second largest in Euronav, so probably a necessary ally in those discussions. Euronav's last results tell of a $340 million loss for the company. It was a pretty dire 2021 for tankers, owing in part to the pandemic. So they'll be keen to make the most of those expected synergies from the merger. With questions hanging over the future, of the tanker market as the world weans itself off of oil. I wouldn't be surprised to see more M&A activity as the years roll on and companies try to make the most out of the market. Indeed, it's going to be very interesting how all of this plays out with, as you say, the future of the tanker market somewhat in question, at least in its current format carrying crude oil. Looking back to the first week for myself, and much of the shipping community in Singapore, where I'm based, for April was a very busy start to the month with Singapore Maritime Week. Coming just as the Lion City lifted most of its travel and large event restrictions, it was a chance for the most social of industries to finally reconnect after two years, both locally and with guests from overseas. I could actually easily take this entire podcast talking about the different events, but we'll focus in on a topic that loomed large over a lot of different discussions, and that was decarbonisation. The keynote panel on the opening day was a power-packed session which featured BW Group Chairman Andreas Soman-Pau, and Ocean Network Express CEO Jeremy Nixon, and there was a strong call to face the reality that an instant switch to green fuels simply isn't possible, as they are not available at scale. Instead, ship owners and operators need to act now with available low-carbon fuel options while ensuring optionalities for green fuels in the future. It was a theme that was continued a couple of days later by MISC boss Data Yi Yang Chen, who quoted actor Tom Cruise from the movie Top Gun on the need for speed, by which he was referring not to how fast ships go, but the need to act now on decarbonisation with currently available options. As I say, I could go on a lot more. I'm going to leave that there. If you'd like to read the stories that myself and Gary are talking about in this episode, you can find links in the show notes. Moving on to week two, continuing with the theme of decarbonisation, Gary, over to you. So we had a story from Chile, 
the government there launched a project with the McKinney and Moller Institute for Zero Carbon Shipping to establish green corridors for import and export. Green corridors are zero emission shipping routes between two or more ports. The idea really came to prominence in November 2021 at COP26 with the signing of the Clyde Bank Declaration, where 19 countries, including Chile, signed their ambition to set up at least six corridors by the middle of this decade and many more by the end of it. Chile's first step with the Maersk Institute will be to map out and assess viable routes, as you'd expect. And once that research is completed, hopefully this year, they'll move on to deployment of green corridors in coming years. That same Maersk Institute is already involved in the Northern Europe Green Corridor Network. So clearly this is a strategy that they're really backing. Worth noting that in week one, as part of Singapore Maritime Week, Singapore signed up to the Clyde Bank Declaration and was the 23rd signatory. So not a bad rate of uptake really, up from 19 in November when it was first introduced. What's your week two pick, Marcus? Yeah, it wasn't easy to decide what to talk about really. But since I do actually have to make a choice, I'm going to go with an interview we did with Toll Group Managing Director Thomas Knudsen. Thomas heads a top 10 global forwarder and was previously a senior executive with Maersk. So he offers some really well-rounded insights into what is happening in the supply chain. And if anyone's looking for a quick fix, I'm afraid it was not good news. With lockdowns in China, more on those later, and the possibility of industrial action at US West Coast ports to follow, Thomas warned that disruption is set to continue into 2023. And even then, the supply side, in terms of container shipping, won't see a fix till probably 2024, when new tonnage starts to arrive. He also offered some advice on how to manage your supply chain in these challenging times. And if you want to know more, you can read the full story, Global Supply Chain Disruption to Continue into 2023, on ctrade-maritime.com. So, passing the halfway mark in the month, what do you have for week three for us, Gary? Yeah, my week three pick is one of those sort of small stories, quite a short story, but with quite a big impact. Vartzilla announced that it was going to write off 200 million euros related to its assets and business operations in Russia. The engine manufacturer, I'm sure they actually wouldn't like me saying that as they do a lot more now, but the engine manufacturer also said it was further downscaling its operations in Russia. I thought it worth highlighting as I expect we're going to see a lot more of this in the coming weeks. Companies showing the the dollar value of their decision to pull out of Russia, whether they've done that for moral reasons or for sanctions compliance in the wake of the war in Ukraine. For Vatsila, Russia accounted for around 5% of its 2021 net sales, which I'm sure will be felt. We've obviously seen a lot of companies across our industry pull back from Russia, and their exposure and the financial impacts are going to vary greatly, I think. This is also a quick opportunity as we're on Ukraine to highlight the ongoing crisis there, with around a 1,000 seafarers still trapped in Ukraine ports. As the war in Ukraine continues, it's worth listeners reflecting on how their companies can help those seafarers affected in Ukraine. Obviously, there was a huge wave of support at the outbreak of the war, and I'm certain the need for assistance now continues and has only grown as the war goes on. Marcus, I believe your week three pick is one of those stories that really could have been chosen at any point this month. That is very true. There are two stories that have consistently captured CJ Maritime News readers' attention over the last month. One of these is the Shanghai lockdown. As China continues its zero COVID strategy, some 25 million people in the country's commercial heart of Shanghai have been confined to their residences for a month now. 
It hasn't been the total supply chain disaster that might have been expected, as the world's largest container port has actually been kept running by workers who have lived and slept on site. However, the issue is landside. There is a severe shortage of truckers who require constant testing, major access roads are closed, warehouses have been shut, and factory production suspended. There are now some signs the authorities are trying to get things moving again, and the impact of this could actually then slam the world's supply chain with a sudden surge in demand. The authorities are also trying to get the city's shipyards back up and running, with new buildings and repair jobs having ground to a halt. As much of the lockdown continues as we speak, clearly the situation is not resolved yet, and it could spread to other cities. I read at lunchtime today that Guangzhou is just embarking on mass testing, having discovered a case at its airport. Hundreds of flights have also been cancelled into the southern port city. So we could see the story rolling into other ports next month as well. Now, as I mentioned, there were two stories that really captured readers' attentions across April. And as we move into the final week, Gary has news of the other one, which I'd characterize as a guide of how not to run a shipping company. Gary. Ah, oh, thanks, Marcus. It's hard to know where to start, really. We are, of course, talking about P&O Ferries debacle in the UK, a story that continues to astound me day by day. P&O Ferries Dover Calais service remained cancelled over the Easter holiday, which is a busy weekend over here for passenger traffic on the English Channel. P&O Ferries had planned to have its services out of action for around 10 days, which was a timescale it thought would be appropriate for replacing its 800 sacked seafarers with agency staff and getting those new crews up to speed with its vessels. Clearly, they were wrong. One flashpoint this month was on April 19. ITF inspectors were refused access to the port of Dover to investigate welfare issues on the Dover-Calais ferries. One of the inspectors said this was the first time he'd been refused access to investigate crew welfare issues, in the UK that is, in his 17 years in the job. P&O Ferries also revealed around that same time that it had sacked seven agency staff for returning from shore in breach of alcohol guidelines. I'll leave you all to translate that corporate speak yourselves. Again, real bad news for a, a company insisting that its new crews are just as good and safe as the experienced seafarers that it ditched. The latest story at the time of recording is that P&O allegedly tried to cut the pay of its agency staff, something that it has denied and claims was a misunderstanding. Whatever the truth of it, the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency said that it investigated a complaint on seafarer welfare and employment contracts on the Spirit of Britain, which is one of those Dover-Calais ferries, and that the complaint was upheld. And then to top off the P&O circus this month, we had a P&O ferry suffer technical difficulties at sea that left it adrift for a few hours in the Irish Sea. The ship did eventually make its way to its destination under its own power. The company said that it will carry out a full investigation into the incident which is handy because the MCA said that it will carry out an inspection before the ferry returns to full service as well. I won't list the current state of the MCA inspections of P&O ferry vessels as this sort of changes day by day as the company tries to get its fleet back in service, but keep an eye on Sea Trade Maritime News and there'll be updates there as they come in. Marcus, what have you got to round off Maritime in Minutes April? Well, it's something somewhat shorter. My week four story, I had a choice between the obvious, which was the Keppel and Semcorp Marine merger, and the left field. So I've gone with the left field. 
Regular readers of Citro Maritime News will be aware we've been covering the ongoing challenges for European owners trying to recycle ships while complying with European regulations, which preclude using all facilities in South Asia, which just also happened to be 90% of global capacity. A location where we were not expecting to see a solution was the US. Well, International Shipbreaking Limited in Brownsville, Texas has complied with the stringent EU ship recycling regulation and has just dismantled its first European vessel, a 16,000 deadweight tanker Wolverine, recycling some 97% of its materials. Clearly this is not going to provide a solution to all, but it's good to know it exists and perhaps it provides a model for others. Well, that's all we've really got time for. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Maritime in Minutes. Make sure you stay on top of the news by signing up for our newsletter at ctrade-maritime.com. For myself and Gary, we look forward to talking to you again at the beginning of June. <laughs>